Welcome to the Podcast Journal Club. I'm Giselle Arney, the Interim Sports Medicine Fellowship Director and Sports Medicine Physician. And I'm Sonia Del Tredici, an Academic Internist and Associate Program Director of the Internal Medicine Residency Program at Wellspan York Hospital. On this podcast, we discuss current medical literature with residents and attendings from different specialties. On today's episode, our theme is fluid resuscitation, and our guest presenters are from the emergency department. We have Alex Pizarro and Ivana Margie. We will also be having evidence-based medicine segment brought to you by Dr. Sonia Del Tredici. Welcome, Dr. Pizarro. Thank you for being here. What will you be sharing with us today? Thank you for having us. We're really excited to join you for the podcast. Um, my article that I'm going to discuss is balanced crystalloids versus saline in critical ill adults. It's also known as the SMART trial for isotonic solutions and major adverse renal events trial. And this was published in New England Journal of Medicine in 2018. So why is this study important? So I think there's been a longstanding question on whether the use of normal saline versus balanced crystalloids is safer in critically ill patients and patients who have chronic disease. And there have been a few studies um, in animal models and humans, but there's never been a large study like this one before. And what is the clinical question that this study proposes? So this study asked in critically ill patients, does the use of balanced crystalloids compared to normal saline reduce 30-day composite outcome of death, new renal replacement therapy, and renal dysfunction? Do you find that the study is valid? I think so. Um, it was a pretty large study, and they it was able to identify a small percentage difference. I think most of them were only a 1% difference, but there was a pretty strong um, significant difference with a, a good p-value. Alex, can I jump in? This is yeah. Sonia here. I just think that the study design of this trial is so interesting. Would you be willing to talk about it a little bit, how they designed and carried out this trial? Sure. So this study was done at a single academic center in the United States in Nashville. It was Vanderbilt who conducted this study. And what they did was anyone who was in, uh, admitted to the ICU was enrolled in the study. And on a month-to-month -month basis, they assigned each ICU a different fluid to administer. So they had the medical, neuro, cardiac, trauma, and surgical units involved in the study. And if the medical unit was assigned normal saline, the minute they entered the ED or came out of the OR, the patients received uh, normal saline. And if they were going to the surgical unit, vice versa. I thought it was interesting because the entire hospital sort of went along with it. So all the different departments that the pass-through used the assigned fluid for the entire month, rather than try to randomize each patient individually to get saline or LR. Correct. So they grouped them based on what unit they were going to be admitted to, and they, they coordinated with the ED, the OR, and, and anyone who would admit to their ICUs. The only one that was excluded was the cardiac cath lab, just because it depended on the cases, what kind of fluid that they received. So they were not in conjunction with the other departments. So what were the results of this study? What did they find? So their primary outcome showed that the... Um, major adverse kidney events at hospital discharge for 30 days was 
significantly greater in the patients who received normal saline. So the actual numbers showed that balanced crystalloid group had 14.3% and the normal saline group was 15.4% with a p-value of 0.04. So although it was only a 1% difference, this was a large enough study to be able to identify that it does make a difference. And they came up with a number needed to treat of 94. That's a pretty big deal, even for a small difference. How will you be using this in patient care? So I think that this answered kind of the question that I've been wondering, is normal saline safe in certain patients? And I think that it make me more inclined to pick a balanced crystalloid for the majority of my patients, especially septic patients who already have an acidosis going on and can actually make their condition worse. Um, anyone who has some kind of kidney injury, again, that can also make it worse. And pretty much just all around unless it's otherwise contraindicated. So, for example, I think like the only case that I wouldn't use a balanced crystalloid would be a brain injury where we would opt for normal saline instead. I just thought this was a great paper. Um, it was one of the best, I think, of the year when it came out. And the reason I liked it so much is, like you said, it's a question we've asked ourselves and like, how come no one studied it? Uh, fluid resuscitation has been around for over a hundred years. And the fact that we still don't have a clear answer on what fluid is best was kind of shocking to me. Um, and since normal saline and the lactated ringers or any other type of um, <clears throat> colloid fluid are the same price and have the same adverse outcomes, except for a very sort of narrow a set of narrow set of cases, there's no reason not to just use, I think lactated ringers is the one we use in our hospital, pretty much in all cases. Um, and it was surprising to me that that question hadn't been definitively answered after so many decades of clinical experience with this therapy. So I think it's a great paper and a great choice to talk about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think for, for a long time, normal saline was the most commonly administered fluid. And even still in the emergency department, I feel a lot of times, maybe out of convenience, just because it's what in our what's in our cabinet, that it's one of the first things that we go to initially when a patient comes in. But it's important to remember to, to switch it afterward. Um, and there's a bunch of studies that shown it worsens acidosis, it worsens inflammatory levels. It's actually the preferred fluid. LR is the preferred fluid for anyone who has pancreatitis for that reason. And then actually worsens kidney, kidney injury as well. So these are things that we could prevent and could improve morbidity and mortality for our patients while they're hospitalized. And fun fact, Vanderbilt actually did a different study around the same time they did the SMART trial. They actually did one called SALT-ED. And for all the patients who weren't admitted to the ICU and were just admitted to the floor, so patients who weren't critically ill, they did the same thing where they randomized them to either normal saline or balanced crystalloid, and they had similar results with that. So it's not only applied to critically ill patients, but also any patient who comes in pretty much. So do you think we should swap out what's in the cabinet and you can only get normal saline if you really make a special request for it? That's an option. I would think so. And originally, there's been a, a few myths that have about LR. One of the things was people thought that LR was more expensive than normal saline, but when you actually analyze the prices, it's only 25 cents more. So with the number needed to treat being 94, it's really only 24 more dollars if we use LR on patients instead of normal saline to be able to prevent uh, a poor outcome in, in one of our patients. 
<laughs> Excellent. Well, thank you so much. Okay, moving thank on to you. our second article. Dr. Margie, thank you for being here today. Tell us what you're going to be presenting. Thank you for having me. I'm going to be talking about the um, article published in the Journal of Critical Care uh, entitled Fluid Resuscitation in Patients with End-Stage Renal Disease on Hemodialysis Presenting with Severe Sepsis or Septic Shock Case Control Study. Um, this was also done in 2020, and it is, it's coming out of a single center, so it was done in a, a North Middle in Staten Island. I'm sensing a theme here. <laughs> I do these things on purpose. We know what we're up to here. Yeah. So why is this study important? So, I mean, it, it answers like, or it looks at a very important clinical question. Um, you know, a lot of times we're facing the emergency department with either a hypotensive or a hypertensive patient who's coming from dialysis or coming from home with maybe an infection, maybe not. And we, we're always asking ourselves the question, how much fluid do we give these people? You know, we put them at risk for fluid overloading them, needing emergent dialysis, putting them into respiratory distress. And a lot of studies looking at the outcomes of these patients who get, you know, the 30 cc per kg bolus that's recommended by the surviving sepsis campaign. So I think this is a really important clinical question that we face all the time in the emergency department. Excellent. And what is the clinical question that this study is asking? So this study specifically is looking at um, whether or not, or basically among patients who've been diagnosed with severe sepsis or septic shock um, in the emergency department, what percentage of these patients with end-stage renal disease on hemodialysis actually received an, 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 the initial fluid resuscitation of 30 cc's per, key, per kg compared to the non-end-stage um, renal disease patients. And then secondary outcomes sort of looked at, um, you know, the uh, rates of intubation and respiratory distress and things like that. So, but primarily it's strictly looking at what percentage of patients um, with end-stage renal disease receive that initial fluid resuscitation bolus. Okay. So is this study valid? Um, I would say it's kind of a mixed bag for me. I think that it's, it's hard to, to put all of your eggs in one basket in the sense that the, the demographic population that they looked at here was very limited. Um, it's a single center study. It's retrospective. Um, it's more of a, it's a, it's definitely a case control study. Um, but you know, their, their patient population is very homogenous. So it doesn't have a lot of, I mean, the, the internal validity might be great, but I'm, I'm kind of questioning whether it has a lot of, uh, generalizability for the, for, other populations. Um, it's kind of also hard to gauge how sick some of the patients were who they studied here. I also felt the clinical question was a little odd. It seemed like it was more descriptive or almost more of a quality study, right, like right. what percentage of patients got the recommended fluid. You know, the question I was really interested in is, did getting the recommended fluid improve outcomes? And I know they looked at that as a secondary outcome, but it seems like the primary outcome to me was, I don't know, maybe less interesting. Right. I guess I you have to start good. somewhere. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. No, it's okay. Yeah, I think the secondary outcome was far more interesting and is, is probably what we're more, what we're clinically, the question that we're asking ourselves more often in our practice um, than the primary question, which was, did they even get the bolus? I guess you have to start somewhere there. If you're not even sure if patients are getting the recommended treatment, I guess that's the first question you ask before asking if it works. 
mean, I guess I would have hoped that that's the recommended treatment because you have some evidence that it works. I I actually was going to, can I chime in on that? Yeah. So I was actually reading through the surviving sepsis campaign last night and they mention on their actual website and the recommendations that they recommend per kilogram fluid bolus, but there's actually no evidence behind that. It's just a recommended dose to initiate therapy and that then we should reevaluate our patients um, and kind of decide on a case-by-case basis how much fluid they should receive. I think it's like a lot we need to learn. Well, I think with the surviving sepsis campaign, the reduction in mortality usually is seen with the entire surviving sepsis bundle which involves a whole set of interventions, not just the fluid. So when you try to test any individual intervention, often it doesn't seem to have a huge improvement in mortality. It's only when you put them all together with the hemodynamic monitoring, the early antibiotics, the IV fluid, whatever else you need, then you get the more dramatic increases in mortality. So this is really looking at a single component of that early goal-directed therapy protocol. So I wasn't super surprised not to see a huge difference but it does make you question these things that we, we take for granted. Oh, you have to do it this way because that's the best way. And then when you really look at the data, it turns out it doesn't make as huge a difference as you might have thought. Well, let's look at the data. What are the results of this study? So this was a, like I mentioned earlier, a retrospective case control study. So they looked at 104 patients with end-stage renal disease on hemodialysis as their case. And then... Um, 111 patients, and they basically the, the first kind of question that was asked was what percentage of patients actually received that 30 cc per kilo bolus within the first six hours, and 23.08 percent of the case the case patients, so the patients with end stage renal disease, actually received the um, 30 cc per kilo bolus, and 60 percent of the control did. Um, so. The, the, kind of like the average amount of fluids that were uh, administered to the end-stage renal disease patients was about 20 cc's per kilo compared to 35 cc's per kilo for the control group. Um, the secondary outcomes that they then looked at were ICU admission rates, um, need for vasopressors, and the rate of intubation within the first 24 hours of presentation, uh, the length of mechanical ven- ventilation, and the mean time to ordering antibiotics. So um, the the sort of the way that they pared this down um, for patients to ended up needing to go to the IC percent of them um, were end-stage renal disease patients compared to, which I found really interesting, the control group, which is the patients without end-stage renal disease who seem to be a lot sicker in the study. Um, about 80% of those ended up getting admitted to the ICU and 70% of the control group required um, two or more vasopressors compared to 54% in the end-stage renal disease group. Uh, so um, it's, you know, those are sort of the secondary outcomes that came out of the study. They also did um, a multivariate logistic regression analysis, and um, they, they found that patients with, you know, which we kind of already intuitively know, patients with higher lactic acid was associated with higher mortality. And when they paired this down, looking at the control group specifically, um, they found that a lot of these patients who were not on end-stage renal disease tended to have higher um, uh, lactic acids, uh, have a more lactic acidosis and leading to a higher mortality. And maybe that was why they ended up being a lot sicker than the end-stage renal disease patient. So how are you going to use this in patient care? Um, you know, ultimately they, 
basically found that there wasn't really a whole lot of um, negative to giving the recommended 30 cc per kilo bolus in end-stage renal disease patients. I find that in my own clinical practice, I'm very cautious with how I fluid resuscitate these patients because oftentimes they do look very volume overloaded when they present to us, despite the fact that they might be hypotensive. I don't think that this study is going to convince me to be more liberal with my um, fluid resuscitation of these patients who are in um, severe sepsis or septic shock, um, mostly because I, you know, I would worry that they would become fluid overloaded or require emergent dialysis, even though the study says that it's probably okay. Um, I still find that the sample size is a little bit small, especially in the subgroup analysis. The sample size was only 104 patients. Um, and I don't think that this is, that. I think the, the retrospective study design in and of itself limits generalizability, particularly to my population, in which I find that a lot of our end-stage renal disease patients tend to be sicker. Um, you know, and on top of that, they didn't really talk too much about the type of crystalloid used, whether blood products or albumin were used. I, I think ultimately, I don't think this study will change my practice very much. I'm not going to overzealously bolus these patients with normal saline specifically or any other fluid. Um, it's going to be small aliquots of fluid and then kind of reassessing how they respond to that, um, you know, especially because I do believe that the risk for overloading them and putting them into, you know, respiratory distress or having them require um, emergent dialysis is, is a significant one. And it's not one that I'm, you know, willing to um, risk on a very small study that's not very generalizable, in my opinion. Well, and again, just to remember that it wasn't even the primary outcome, whether getting right. that uh, aggressive level of fluid resuscitation would be beneficial. I mean, I think it leaves you, you could say, sure, it is a fine option. It certainly didn't show that it's worse, but it also didn't show that it's better. So I think it 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 leaves us with it leaves us with questions still. But I think it's it's at least reassuring. So I wouldn't say, oh gosh, if someone has end stage renal disease, definitely don't give them the um, 30 cc's per kg of IV fluid. It seemed to say that that's fine, um, but it doesn't prove that it's better. Yeah, I, exactly. It doesn't prove that it's going to actually improve their outcome at all. And if I can jump in here real quick, um, and this is Bob Stunts, I'm the producer, and uh, just as sort of background knowledge and emergency physician by training as well, um, you know, when you go all the way back to the original kind of, you know, early goal-directed therapy studies done by Manny Rivers, um, there, there was not this concept of a 30 cc per kilo bolus. You know, if you look at the original papers, um, of course they were using, uh, Edwards precept catheter and they were checking CVPs and all this was sort of goal directed in terms of having goals for CVPs and everything like that. Um, but what they were doing is they were giving 500 cc aliquots in that original study, um, versus just kind of a blind 30 cc per kilogram, uh, bolus. And, you know, as Alex kind of mentions, there's, there's really not a great evidence base for this 30 cc per kilo, but it's something that at this point we really take as, well, yeah, I mean, this is what we do. This is the surviving sepsis campaign and these are the recommendations. And so, you know, we just sort of wind up giving this massive amount of fluid. And, you know, certainly in our population where we take care of patients, um, we have some folks who are bigger people. And, you know, if you wound up doing a 30 cc per kilo bolus, you're talking six, seven liters of fluid in some cases, which... Um, I think most people would just kind of look out on the surface and question whether or not that's wise to just blindly give somebody regardless of their weight. Um, and especially with the comorbidities that folks who are that weight have, 
Um, just blindly giving them that much fluid um, doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. And so it's important for people to know that, again, this idea of smaller aliquots with, you know, goal-directed endpoints um, that we are looking for uh, was kind of the original idea behind this. And then now, through very little evidence, I think maybe one or two smaller studies, we've got this 30 cc per kilogram number. Right. I think the two the two trials are the process and arise trials where they did the 30 cc per kilogram fluid bolus. And then there was a promise trial where they did two liters of fluids for patients. And, and all those showed promising results, which is probably where they got those numbers from. But um, they do specify that there really isn't a, a strong evidence for it. And they recommend initiating it, but evaluating. And now we have a bunch of different ways that we can evaluate fluid status in patients. You can do leg rays, you can do an echo, you can look at their IVC. So in addition to CVP and other measures they've used before, we have a, a bunch of other options that are non-invasive. Yeah. And I had to throw an ultrasound, I mean, yes. ultrasound fellow here. Exactly. <laughs> not, bi- not biased at all. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. Those are two very interesting papers. Thank you, guys. And I, I just, I really like re-examining things that we do very routinely that maybe we haven't thought about. You know, is there even evidence behind what we're doing? And so much of what we do in medicine really is not backed up by evidence. And when it's rigorously tested, we learn a lot about it. We learn that maybe it wasn't so good after all, or maybe it was even better than we thought. So I, I like these papers examining common practices that have never been fully evaluated. Awesome. Well, thanks, guys. Thank you. Thanks so much for having Thank us. You. Thank thanks, you guys. guys. All right. I wanted to talk for a minute about a concept that is near and dear to my heart that I use a lot when I'm examining articles, and you guys both did a good job of bringing this up. It's the concept of looking at demographic inclusion criteria of who's in a study. So when we're analyzing an article, often we look at who is included in the article. For example, everyone over age 18 who meets criteria for sepsis and has end-stage renal disease. That would be the main inclusion criteria for our second paper. But the inclusion criteria doesn't often describe who's actually in the study. It just describes who's allowed in the study. So for our second paper, the people who actually ended up in the study were almost all 70-year-old white men. And I think like you have pointed out, Ivana, it's a relatively narrow demographic. And that's really important when you're looking at a study because it tells you if you can extrapolate the data to your own patients. So for example, in the US, 35% of people on dialysis are African-American, but that was not reflected in the cohort in this study. So could you apply this result to a 20-year-old woman who's on dialysis because of polycystic kidney disease. Maybe you could extrapolate, but maybe not. It's important to recognize that the people in the study may not actually represent your patients. And that's a key point when you're trying to take the evidence and bring it back to your own clinical practice. And so again, for our listeners, when you're reading an article, Rather than focusing on the inclusion criteria of who made it into, of who was allowed in the study, look at table one in any paper which describes the demographics of who got in the study. See if those demographics match the patients you are thinking about and treating, and use that to decide if the study is relevant to your personal practice. 
And for our researchers listening, this is a great call to action to include more women and people of color in our research studies to better reflect our true demographics, because that is something that have been historically underrepresented in our research uh, studies. And we'd like to include more to better reflect our population. So great point, Dr. Del Tredici. Thank you. That's a wrap. Thank you for joining us. This has been the Podcast Journal Club with your hosts, Dr. Giselle Arney and Dr. Sonia Del Tredici. And produced by Dr. Bob Stunts. Email us with questions or comments at podcastjournalclub at gmail.com and check out our website for show notes from today's episode at www.podcastjournalclub.org. <laughs>